Greetings. Before today's episode, we have a very special note that we would like to read for one of our patrons. And I quote, Happy one-year anniversary to my amazing husband, Xavier, or as we know him, X. Thank you for exemplifying the love of Christ in our marriage and giving me the grace and mercy I don't deserve. Your love for God and others makes me fall more in love with you every day. And I am so grateful for the opportunity to spend the rest of my life serving with you. You truly are an Ephesians 5 man. I love you more than words can describe. And I pray that God would bless us for many years to, to come. Love, Anna Marie. Happy anniversary, Xavier and Anna Marie. And do you have any advice for the... Uh... Well, people often ask me, yeah. how did you remain married for 17 and a half years? And the answer is simple. Don't get a divorce. There you go. And the family that plays Trinity Radio together stays together uh -huh. or something like that. Good. Welcome to another edition of Trinity Radio. I am Jonathan Pritchett, and along with me is Dr. Jim Chatham. He is the dean of Trinity's School of Christ-Centered Counseling, and he will be with us today to talk about the problem of suffering. Stick around. We got Dr. Braxton Hunter, pretty talented and well-known apologist. Shared the stage with the William Lane Craigs to the Mike Laconas to all those guys. Jonathan Pritchett, Dr. Pritchett is here and he is a New Testament guy. Does a lot of stuff, a lot of podcasts, a lot of debates, so on and so forth. You can go out of this room tonight and be a Christian apologist. Now, it may not be that you're able to give the answers. But you know, you can be immediately when we're done here tonight, you can be an answer finder for people. We need to stand up and tell men, and, and more and more women, God is smarter than you. And there are consequences for all of these actions. So why don't you stop for a moment and think, you don't know what's best for you compared to what God knows is best for you. And we're back. Um, as I said, Dr. Jim Chatham, he is a dear friend of mine. I am so glad you're here with us, classing up the joint. I don't have to sit here with Dr. Hunter this time, thank God. Uh, get a little bit of gravitas around here. There you go. Yeah, so you're actually our second guest. We had Dr. Harold Hunter, uh, and I did a show with him talking about divorce. And today we were going to talk about, um, and that was very popular. It seems like whenever Braxton's gone, the, the ratings go up. So, <laughs> so I expect this would be a good one. Uh, we wanted to talk about the problem of evil and the problem of suffering. Because in apologetics, we talk about the problem of evil, but we're solving philosophical conundrums like... Yeah. Um, the logical problem of evil uh, goes back to Epicurus, you know, if God is all good and all loving, you know, why yeah. is there evil? Uh, but what apologists don't recognize is when somebody's in the midst of suffering, what they don't want to hear is a philosophical argument that, yeah. well, God's, uh, God still exists even though he's letting this bad thing happen to you. Um, I know that you talk about the problem of suffering. You teach, Braxton Hunter teaches the problem of evil course from the philosophical perspective, but you teach it from the biblical counseling perspective. So yes. talk a little bit about, uh, number, what, what is the key focus areas of that kind of course? And how do you approach it from a counseling, just a broad overview? Okay, well, first, thank you for having me today. Yeah. I'm honored to be a guest. It's not that I, much of an honor. but, <laughs> but. I cannot replace uh, Dr. Braxton Hunter, but uh, I've looked forward to today, and yeah. so I'm looking forward to our time together. I think probably, number one, when you have an issue such as evil, here's an individual that seemingly has lived for the Lord, and they're, they're following the Lord, and you think about the 73rd Psalm, and the psalmist thinks to himself, I almost gave up. And he starts talking about the events in his life. He wonders, he looks around, and he sees these individuals who are not living in any way for God. In fact, they're almost like individuals who go out and shake their fist at, in glory and, and almost mock God. And, and, and the psalmist thinks to himself, you know, have I cleansed my heart in vain? Have I in some way you know, sinned against God? Is my faith vain and empty? And what happens in that context is, and it can happen to any of us, is that when you face the pain and then when you can't identify why, then your emotions and, and impulses kind of take over. Right. And so the psalmist, you can just read that and you can see his, his mind racing. He's trying to discern, was it that's wrong in my life? What's going on here? And then he paused, and that's always the key. 
when you pause. And here you are, you may have rapid cycling in your cognitions, in your memories. You may have emotions that each time a new thought pops into your mind, you have an emotional reaction. When I was a, a little child, many, many decades ago, we used to have these little things called viewmasters. And what you do, you had these little projection devices, and you would put the, the, the little, uh, uh, little slide in there. It had various pictures on it, and you'd oh, pop you it. click it? And, yeah, yeah, you'd okay, click it, and you'd about. hold yeah. it up, and you'd look, and it would be anything from a national monument to whatever, you know. And, but if I would stand there and start clicking that rapidly, you'd go, stop, stop, I, I can't see it. My eyes will not focus. Well, that's kind of what happens to us when we go through pain and evil. All of a sudden, we're racing. You know, one of the first thoughts is, what did I do wrong? One of the second thoughts is, how do I get out of this? And then number three is a lot of times people have an improper view of Scripture. They'll think, now, wait a minute. If I'm a person of faith, shouldn't I be, you know, like David and have the great victories? Or shouldn't I be like, uh, you know, one of the apostles when they're walking into the temple area and facing, you know, their critics and all of this? But when so, so often when people face the times of adversity, they think, well, my theology's wrong or God's not consistent. And all these thoughts start racing through the mind and none of them stay there long enough for you to come to grips with. So you're just basically at the mercy of, of, of thoughts that are often uh, irrational, illogical. And if you could stop, you wouldn't normally think that way, but you're in survival mode. Right, well, and that's that's interesting because... When we're talking about the problem of evil from apologetics, we're talking about reason. We're talking about logic. You might want to scoot just a hair closer. Okay. Um, we're talking about reason. We're talking about logic. We're talking about um, why these things fail. But when somebody's actually in the midst of suffering, you, all you talked about was emotions and mind racing. Someone like me is ill-equipped to deal with that if all they know is well, you should have faith in God because here's how we know that despite evil, God, you know, yeah. that's not what they need. No. Right. No. And I think I, I think you can actually make things worse <laughs> yes. if you start giving them, well, you know, you should have faith and because here, you know, the, 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 the probability of God's existence based on prior arguments for God's existence proves that the problem of evil doesn't go through because we have a free will theodicy and we have, you know, yes. reformed theodicy. We have all these theodicies. They're not thinking about theodicy. They're thinking about, I'm in pain. Yes. And, and, and sometimes I think because we, people fancy themselves intellectuals, especially among <laughs> apologists, but even <laughs> pastors, the first thing that they want to do is they want to be rational, and, 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 but, which you should always be rational, but, they, but they, it's not so much compassion towards them as it is analytical. And yeah. that's, you would say that's the worst thing you could do. Well, I think number one is, you, as a Christian, you always want to be proactive in being sure that you're growing in the truth. I teach several biblical counseling courses here at Trinity, and in that uh, setting, uh, we talk about the sufficiency of God's Word. We talk about the presence of Christ. We talk about the power of His Spirit. And from my perspective, the ultimate change agents are the Spirit of the Lord and the Word of the Lord. But what happens is, is when you're in the midst of a trial, especially something that you don't have an answer for, right? then all of a sudden your mind is racing. And your first thing is, number one, how do I get out of this? How do I get out? You know, I don't like the pain of this. I don't like what's happening to me. I don't like what's happening to my family. And, you know, your first thing is survival. There's a part of the brain that reasons that way. And it's it has a good purpose, uh, you know, if, if the fight or flight mechanism is going and, you know, you see an animal, a predator, it's good for that kick in and right. an adrenaline rush. But when you're in the midst of some type of continual crisis that happens almost suddenly and then it continues and then that part of your mind is just racing. And f physically you don't feel well. Emotionally you do not right. feel well. Spiritually you're confused and, and here you are. And all of those things are racing and, and, and you're thinking to yourself, nothing seems right, nothing appears right. You're totally out of focus. And so going into your world for, from the, the uh, cognitive rational side, I would say that you want to constantly be nurturing your heart and your mind in the Word of God so that when the inevitable crisis comes, Jesus said in this world you will 
have tribulation. I'm amazed right. at the number of believers who are trying to find a way to avoid uh, it. To avoid it at all costs. I'm one of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't embrace it. But yeah. you know, but but to come back and to say, hey, wait a minute, maybe let's slow it down here. Let's stop. Okay, what's truth here? And you identify that truth. And the first one is, you know, what about the promises of God? What about the presence of God? And you pause. And rather than totally focusing on your circumstances, you get your bearings. You slow things down. So your biblical logic comes back. Your emotions are not absolutely dominating and shouting a thousand messages almost a second at you. Right. And you have the physiological reactions going on. And, you know, you're, you're irritated. You're agitated. You can't get comfortable. You can't sleep because, man, everything's racing and everything is just processing. 90 miles an hour, and your your mind is racing toward what about the illness I have? What about the suffering I have? What about the person who wronged me? What about the person who wronged me 10 years ago? You know, right. pops in the mind. So, well, it's, it's coming. Well, I recognize what you're saying in my own experience about nine years ago when my father passed away. Yeah. Now, nine years ago, I was already what you talked about. I had solid biblical grounding. I had the cognitive understanding about the apologetics uh-huh. for the problem of evil. And I, and I agree with you that that's important to have, but do you, it, it, when you're talking about the emotions, the mind racing stuff, my dad was my best friend. He yeah. was my rock in my life. And he didn't become that until after I got my rebellious teenage years out. And yeah. you know, he went from the dumbest person on the planet to the smartest person <laughs> on the planet. And so we only had a few years in my uh, 20s uh, or so where, where we became really, really close mm-hmm. since the time we were kids. Yeah. But, you know, he got cancer and I had to watch him die a slow death. And despite all of the head knowledge I had about, you know, there's still a good God in the midst of this yes. evil. Watching him die like that, horrible. Yes. And all of that stuff that I had prepared in my mind intellectually, out the window. Mm-hmm. God, how could you do this? Why should I even think you're there if this is going to... I never thought that I would actually have that kind of reaction. I thought, well, yeah. when something happens, I, I'm the guy who's even... I know that... I know... I know I, I'm above this. Yeah. No way. It, no matter how much you try to prepare for something like that, and I know this probably it gets into your bereavement kind of stuff because yeah. you teach a whole course on yeah. that. But for me, it... And I'm wondering, will I actually have to experience this again? Like, if I outlive my wife, God forbid, I hope that I go first. <laughs> but it's like, I know no matter how much I have grounding in this stuff, that happens to you. It does. And, and it's, it's, it happened to me, and none of the philosophical stuff brought me any comfort. Yeah. Um, none of the, well, you know, God has a plan for everything, and, you know... Um, you will grow from this. None of that helped. Yes. I mean, nothing really. It just, it's time. Yes. And, and, and people just letting me vent mm-hmm. seemed to do the trick for me. Because I was mad at God for taking my... I, I, I never thought in for a million years I would ever be mad at God for taking my dad. Yeah. But I was. Because, okay, I do believe that God exists, so it's your fault. You could have given him 10 more years. You could have mm-hmm. given me 10 more years mm-hmm. with him. You know, we just got so close. Mm-hmm. All of that stuff, and it's amazing that no matter... And I'm not the most intellectual person in the world, but I had all that stuff that we talk about a lot yeah. on this show with Braxton, yeah. apologetics and stuff, but the, at the personal level, it's just... So So somebody like me, what do you do as a, as a from a biblical counseling standpoint? How do you address me when I'm mad? Yeah. You know? And well, I don't want to go to church. Yeah, I'd rather be the guy who shakes his fist at God and say, "God, you're there. I know you're there. I wish I didn't believe in you because you're uh, whatever for taking my." You know, how, that's where that's where it's no longer an intellectual thing. Right. That's a real thing. Yeah. Well, one loss of attachment is one of the most significant triggers in life. And, uh, you know, example, just a couple of examples. When parents lose a child, the divorce rate's about 80%. Mm. The marriage just cannot weather that loss of attachment. And then we start looking for blame. And then what I consider a great injustice, it doesn't matter what happens. The mother typically is the one who's blamed for the death of the child. Really? No matter what happens. Uh, That's not totally uh, true in every situation, but to a large degree. And so what we have to do is... Loss of attachment, whether you lose someone to physical death. You know, pastors who are watching and listening to this will think about things like people they're dealing with in their church that are going through a divorce. 
Uh, even pastors themselves, when someone leaves their church. I remember years ago when Promise Keepers was big on the, on the, on the American scene. Right. And I went to one of the conferences in Nashville. And John Maxwell, you know, everybody knows John Maxwell. You know, yeah. here's this guy, and he's written all these things on leadership. And he was standing up there talking to pastors about their pain. And he started sobbing when he talked about one of his best friends leaving his church. And the best friend told him, the reason we're leaving your church is because we're not being fed by you any longer. And I watched John MacArthur be that vulnerable, talking about the loss of that friend, somebody he's with. So coming back on topic, the reality is when you lose somebody, you lose a relationship. It is a major pain event in a life. And so the you know and for Christians it's a spiritual it's, it's, crisis. It is a spiritual crisis yeah. as well. And then uh, so what you have to do there is again number one you're going to take care of yourself building up to that moment because you talked about you knew the truth you nurtured the truth and eventually you came back to that. Right. But when the high when the high uncertainty is there the brokenness the pain it doesn't matter in those moments what you know in that second the emotions right. are dominating. And so what you have to do is like. Oftentimes, the loss of an attachment is an anxiety event as well. Like, if I'm going to lose my wife or my child or my dad, what else am I going to lose? Right. And that becomes very threatening to you. And so one of the things that you want to do is slow it down the yeah. best you can. Now, you may have to go out and take a lot of brisk walks to burn off the adrenaline, burn off the energy. But you have to find some ways to take care of yourself and slow it down. Two of the worst things you can do are stuff those feelings down. I mean, when they study counseling, one of the most valuable parts of counseling, one of the most effective techniques that a counselor uses, I don't care if you're talking biblical or Christian, you know, the integrationist, or you're talking totally secular, the thing that the counselor has to do is be sure they listen carefully. Don't be glancing at your watch. You know, just listen. Establish the relationship. Prove to that person that you're available, that you're willing to connect with them. And then when you sense that, then as you vent it out, now you can say what you want to. You, you know, you can vent it out. I'm angry with God. I'm angry with the doctor who didn't pick up on, you know, the, the heart issue. I'm angry with whomever. Yeah. You know, I might even be angry with the pastor because I pleaded with him to come over and talk to me about my situation. And he was going to get around to it and he never did. And then boom, he or she left. Yeah, oh, yeah. And so, you know, it really gets Anyway, you can't lash out. You anyway, yeah. you're going to lash out. So you have to vent. And, and one other quick thing that I would encourage is you want to be wise who you lash out to. Somebody yeah. else might use it. But another way you can vent it out is to journal. Just, just start writing. Do not worry about, you know, grammatical concerns or anything. Just start writing. And if in those moments you have some very dark, vile thoughts, write them out. It's okay. Vent it out. You need to do that because if you stuff it down... Whether you repress it or suppress it, one, you know you're stuffing it down. The other one, you're stuffing it, but you don't realize it. Right. But whichever way you're doing there, it's about the worst thing well, you can do. I think the Psalms actually give us a biblical model oh, absolutely. for this. They absolutely. Give, they, God's big enough he can handle your feelings no Bingo. matter how many. Yeah. yeah. And so I've always taken comfort in that. Now, I recall with my dad dying being mad at God, mm -hmm. I would imagine losing a kid, though, for me to to start to really question. That yeah. would probably trigger me worse than losing a parent, losing yeah. a child, especially if they're a young child. I would That might cause me to have a, a faith crisis as much as just an anger issue, yeah. a loss of attachment. That would be probably more severe. Um, so when, when you have those people with you, how long does it take people to if you're in a counseling session, how what's the normal time it takes for people? Is it just all different? Or how long does it take for you to establish, for them to have established trust with you to where you can really start dealing with the issue and being productive in a counseling? Situation? Well, I think one is you're thinking about, let's, let's take for just a second um, uh, a grief loss. Yeah. All right. So as a counselor, what you want to do is you want to begin assessing how close, what was the relationship between the person who's seeking my help and the person who passed away. You know, if you're talking about a child, that really ramps it up. If you're talking about something that's a very, you know, violent death, like if the child were the victim of crime or someone operated a vehicle under an impaired condition, all of those things really ramp up the variables. 
And and so what you want to do is as quickly as you can identify it, the variables. What's taking place there? How old is the deceased person? What was the relationship? What kind of loss is this for the person I'm talking to? Uh, you know, all of these variables. And, and you start identifying those. And then as you identify those, then you start trying to find ways to connect with them. Now, I've never lost a child. We're, we're fortunate. Yeah. Uh, we have three daughters, and uh, we have grandchildren, and, and uh, I love them to death, and I can't imagine losing any of them right. at that point. But for the benefit of the listeners, for 40 years I was a pastor, and, uh, right. and I did lots and lots and lots of funerals for parents who lost young children. A lot of them, and, and I, have, I can still, years later, hear the anguish, the cry. But if, you're, if, you, if I were to say to them, I know what you feel, you've instantly cut them off. Yeah. Because, number one, I've never lost a child. I've been with a lot of families who've been through loss. I have been with parents when their child died in their arms. I've seen that. I've experienced that. I've stood over caskets with little, little bodies in them and somehow tried to make sense out of that with tears in my own eyes, you right. know, trying to figure out how you work through that. And, and so, you know, for me to say, you know, those little cliches like, well, I know how you feel. No, you don't. <laughs> right. Or the other one, it always gets me, well, I guess God needed another little angel. Oh, that one really gets <laughs> yeah, under. Don't say that. <laughs> do not. The cliches are yeah. destructive. Write that down. <laughs> and so what you want to do at that first point is be a very good listener. Do not tell them what they ought to be feeling. Because what you'll often do is, you shouldn't be angry. Well, what are they probably going to do? They're probably going to ramp up the anger just to show you, don't you tell me what I can't That's right. They're going to be angry at you now. So your first role is to establish the connection with them. That's the first thing. Uh, Whether you're talking the secular models, it talks about up front establishing the relationship. In the biblical counseling model, it's referred to building involvement. Whichever way you go, if you don't connect with them, you may be, after that, one of the greatest counselors in the world, and what you have to say may be right on target, but they don't hear you. Yeah. And they're looking so that, first. That first thing. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of us amateur church folks, when, uh, like, pastors who probably aren't familiar with counseling, yeah. um, if they haven't taken any, they've probably burnt a lot of bridges right up front, not Bingo. knowing those kinds of things. And, right. And... And so this is going to be helpful for them. They should all take some kind of generic counseling course yeah. if you're going to be a pastor. But you've worn both hats. You've been a therapist, right? Yeah. You're a licensed therapist. Yes. Uh, well, you wear many hats. Professor, dean, licensed therapist, and like you said, pastor for 40 years. Yeah. So I guess the, the congregants get the free version. <laughs> <laughs> so you probably, But is there a difference in what you get as a licensed therapist from what you get in the local church? Well, one... Uh, I'm glad you asked me that question. There's no national law for counselors. Every right. state has its own regulations, and this isn't anything to do with suffering, but just we might spare someone yeah. of some legal ethical issues. <laughs> you want to know your state laws, and not knowing the laws is not an excuse. Right. In some Even for pastors who... It's, you can, in yeah. some states, they govern uh, a pastoral counselors, and so you need to be aware. And it, it would be worth it to see an attorney pay them a couple of hundred bucks an hour just to learn, you know, what is it you recommend that I do and not do? What do I have to report? And all those kinds of things. And we won't go into all that because I'm not waste our time. But you need ignorance is not acceptable in a court of law. In some states, if a pastor betrays a confidence, even in a prayer session, you know, hey, we need to pray for Mr. and Ms. Smith because their marriage is in trouble. He they can, can be liable. Actually, yeah. They can be liable and there can wow. be serious legal consequences, you know, for something like that. So pastors need to be aware of the state laws where they are. And, and is a, you know, it's interesting. The license that I have, the secular one that's governed by the American Psychological Association, says I cannot introduce faith. Now, it's interesting that I do referrals some for an organization most people are familiar with called Focus on the Family. So they require me to have the secular license that says I can't introduce faith in any form. Doesn't matter if wow. you're talking Christian faith. Hindu, whatever you want to put in the blank, Islam, I cannot introduce those. However, the way we do it is is that we, you know, if you introduce it, I can tell you, I can talk about it, but you have to control it. And if you were to violate that, if I were to, then I would, uh, I could be liable for that. I could be, you know, an, an ethical complaint. I haven't had that happen to me, 
but it could happen to you in that situation. So what I say is I can't introduce faith, but you can, okay? Right. Now, as a biblical counselor, and uh, I always tell people up front, I can do the secular model or I can do the biblical model. And if I do the biblical model, then obviously we're going to be talking out of the Bible. Right. So, But it, whichever way I go, this part is still the same. I have to establish the relationship. They have to sense two things from me, that I connect with them and I'm really listening and I'm willing to express, you know, empathy toward them and not, you know, in some way treat them superficially or like, hey, I got 30 minutes. Tell me what your problem is. Oh, here's all you got to do. Read these four verses every day. <laughs> and, you know, you cause more harm than good if yeah. you're going to do that. And 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 there's no prescription like that for, for there's this. not and and so what I do and then you may up front as you're gathering if you sense that they're just there may be moments you just you just you're quiet and you let them cry there may be moments that and, and your your job there is not to fix them your job there your task your calling is to connect with them and point them from a biblical perspective toward the person who ultimately gives them hope who in that moment. You remember you shared this a little bit ago. You're thinking, where is he? Right. How did he let my dad die? How did he let my child die? Why am I being falsely accused? Why did I lose my career? And on and on it goes. Why do I have this pain? Right. And and so what you have to do for that moment, you're connecting with them, but your ultimate goal is to point them back toward the hope that we have in Jesus without right. trying to guilt or shame them. Now, if they stay... Now that's back, important. Yes, yeah, that's very important. Yeah, I'll... Um, because in evangelical circles, there's, there's a, I don't want to sound negative, but there's a lot of guilt peddling that. Oh, definitely. That can certainly go on. The old phrase, you shouldn't be feeling that way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and making you feel bad for, because you do have certain questions and you do have certain concerns and you do have, will have some both anxiety and anger issues. And a lot of people, um, Want to? They, 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 I guess when they're not experiencing it, they kind of almost demean those who are experienced. And and the worst thing about it is they think they're being helpful. Going back to the cliches, I did not want anyone to tell me that you know. Well, you know that God is sovereign, has a plan in all this. Yeah, I knew that a week ago. I don't know that right now, and I don't think I care right now. Yeah, that's not the problem. Yeah, you know, but. Yeah, but you have you're a Sunday school teacher. You're a deacon in the church. You're or in some cases a pastor. You know, you're this that and the other. You should not feel this way. Yeah. But you but all of us feel that way. You do. And you know, we process basically one of three ways. Now, you can overlap and I'm not trying to put everyone into one category. Some people process more in a behavioral or active way. Uh, this is the teenager who gets angry and punches a hole in the wall at the house, you know, or somebody jumps in their car and drives off, or somebody physically assaults or starts destroying things. So some people, even grief, pain, anguish, they process physically. And one of the worst things they do is turn it on themselves. Mm. And when they turn it on themselves, that's the reason you're seeing today a 30% increase in the suicide rate in our country. Yeah. It's also why you're seeing a, a huge increase in what's called SI, self-injury that's everything from cutting to whatever, self-cutting. And, and you know, so some people process it kind of physically. Other people process emotionally. And so, and, and in that, they can either go really super sad, they can go really, they really embrace, you know, the victim mindset, woe is me, and I'm the only person who's ever felt this. And boy, the negativity and the depression can really dominate. But they're kind of processing it out, you know, more emotionally. And then there's you who processes it out cognitively or rationally. Yeah. And, you know, if I'm having surgery, and I, I don't want my doctor processing any way except cognitively. I want him to, or she to be looking at my situation in a very, you know, factual, objective way to be, you know, working with this and resolving. I, it doesn't matter to me a whole lot about their bedside <laughs> If they can resolve my physical issue, that's what I'm looking for from them. But if I'm going through emotional pain, I don't need someone who's overly factual. I need somebody who'll connect with me where I am. And I've even seen situations with people who are experiencing deep grief. I remember uh, years ago, I had a, uh, a good friend of mine who thought he didn't do well on his uh, medical school exam. And he did, but he didn't think he did. He went home and took his life. And uh, and the, a few days later, the results uh, oh, came back, man. and he was he would have made it. 
but it was too late. And I can remember my friend's father that he wanted to go outside the home. It was like the house was closing in on him. He was claustrophobic. He was so threatened. His world had been turned upside down. And if you'd have tried to hug that man, he would have fought you tooth and nail. He didn't want anything to restrain or constrain him. And we just went out, and he walked. And as, as, as I said a few moments ago, it was, it was ice cold out there. And he was completely, completely, you know, detached from, from his immediate circumstances. All he knew was his son, whom he loved and thought he would share with, and his son, who was going to make the family look proud, and all of these kinds of things, he was gone. And, and he was a man of great faith. He, he rallied back, but there for a while... He was angry. He lashed right. out. He processed physically. Uh, he did go in and out with the emotional side. But if you would have said to him, you know what, you shouldn't feel this way. You should be thankful your son is at home with the Lord or, or whatever at that point. He would have shut you down. You would have had no connection. And yet when he was walking, he was just talking. And then he was breathing. And he was, you know, he was just processing the best he could verbally and, and physically and I think sometimes for those who are involved, whether you're a whether you're a pastor or a pastoral counselor, or you're a biblical counselor, or you're an integrationist counselor, we have some people who yeah. do the most, uh, the, what they would say, the best of both worlds. Uh, whatever you're doing there, you have to connect. They have to know that there's a stability with you, that you identify with them, but you have a sense of direction here. You have a sense. Of, of, of appointing them. There, there's a wisdom. There's a confidence. I did not say an arrogance. Yeah. I didn't say a pride. And our job is not per se to really fix them. It is to point them toward. Right. Yeah, the Holy Spirit fixes them. You yeah. know, uh, but, but, you know, God uses means and God uses, Absolutely. uses us. And, and, and so for me, it's, it's, it's in a sense that I like to be active in local churches more and more apologists should be active in their local churches, but but a lot a lot of pastors now with 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 the way programs set up, they're going to get these issues in their churches definitely. And if they are not prepared for this, yeah. And, and even people who we have friends who go through loved ones, I, I can think of some of you saying, "I have probably ruined." those moments where they probably needed me to be a friend and I said something stupid, you know, and I could think back of that happening where I was probably of no use for them because I didn't, it was more, let me step in and fix this yeah. and find some clever phrase to get things going. And that's the worst thing you can do. Yeah. The thing you need to do is be there and let them start. And yeah. yeah. So, so I'm a pastor. Let's say I'm, I'm a local church pastor. You've got all types of things. Yeah. Uh, one of you had mentioned suicide is a, is on the rise. You know, depression and anxiety seems to be on the rise. Mm -hmm. We're we're sitting here in Evansville, Indiana, and Evansville was at one point the fifth most miserable city in America. Oh my. Yeah, and the I noticed when I came into town, I felt kind of no, I'm right. Scared. Yeah, that's me. My, my <laughs> perpetual bad mood. <laughs> but yeah, we were the fifth most miserable city, and then. Um, Shoot, we were the most obese until here recently. We're now oh, we're number wow. two, but we were, the, the, which which always surprised me because sorry Evansville, but the food here is terrible. <laughs> uh, the local cuisine I like. I, I stay at the chains. The local <laughs> restaurants are awful here, because <laughs> I didn't know how they got so fat. But I mean, but uh, there's a lot. You hear a lot more about depression, mm -hmm. and, and that that we don't think of. Uh, why is anything? Why you know? Some people don't believe it exists yeah. in, in, in the counseling world anymore, especially in the Christian circles. Some mm -hmm. people, it's a fake thing. Mm -hmm. What? What's? But people out there really believe that they're depressed, and if you're around them, they are depressed, and they even talk about to the point that it, it gives a physical ache from yeah. their depression, even. And some people say, "Well, that's all cognitive," or, or, or some people say that's demons, or. Or which is weird if they're a Christian suffering from depression. It brings up a whole theological bag of worms, you know. Or, yeah. or, or can Christians be demons? So make some sense of that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, first off, uh, something you said a couple of moments ago about pastors. One of the things about a pastor is typically he's been there for a while. So he has already built a relationship. He already has the sense of connection. In a lot of ways... You know, the people can predict when his jokes are coming and they yeah. kind of tell his stories. 
there's there's merit in that. Yeah. The merit is is that when he arrives at whatever the crisis point is, hospital, funeral home, nursing home, whatever, usually he already has some sense of connection there. Now, I know that there are a lot of times for pastors, sometimes they meet their church members in a moment of crisis, and the connection is not there. And yeah. that's where you really have to, you know, really work at it and make sure you hear what's happening. And one of the best things you can can ask them is, all right, tell me what's happened thus far. Let them tell the story. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's. I want to give that word of encouragement to pastors that oftentimes they already have a pretty good connection, you know, with the individual. But, you know, uh, but a lot of them do not. That's Go ahead. the first, yeah, that's yeah. the first thing that, they, if that's, that's not, uh, to me, and I think the larger the church, the more likely that's going to be, yes, right? Right. You were a pastor of a large church. Yes. Um, and so, you know, it's hard for you to know every everybody in that kind of or have had a. Uh, you know, and I worked at it really hard. Right. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure most yeah. do. I mean, you know, people yeah. always talk about large but, church pastors don't care about it. That's not. But true. you know what? Did I? Yeah. You know, I may have known a large percentage of the names, but I certainly didn't know what everyone was going right. through. And the other thing that I, I noticed was that there were people who would say, I went through a crisis, but I didn't want to bother you because I knew you already had so much on you. Yeah. And I think that churches, I know this is not a pastoral care type of, right. of discussion uh, today, but I think that you know a pastor can actually set up a system of, of, of equipping some people to do some of the counseling under his direction that takes a little bit of that off of him. Because if he has, you know, really much more than, say, a couple of hundred people who are fairly active in the church, yeah. how can he meet all their needs? Whether right. you're talking about going to the hospital, the nursing home, and there's some guys who are listening to us today who do it very effectively. Yeah. And I salute them, and my hat is off to them. I don't do it effectively. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there has to be a sense of balance. Yeah. A pastor can become drained. And in, in, at any point in time, you're either recharging your emotional, spiritual batteries or you're draining them. Yeah. And, 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 you know, when pastors usually battle personal depression, it's, I, I can usually say, okay, just give me your schedule over the last, you pick a period, like two weeks or so, and you find out. I mean, I talked earlier to a former pastor today who was talking about how many times recently he spoke in a given week, 13 times, and was talking about the number of funerals. And he, I felt a little down after listening to him, <laughs> you know, just yeah. a little bit. But the truth is pastors need to take care of themselves. They really, yeah. truly do. That is, that's not a luxury. It's not an accident. You can, you can read these statistics, and they're, they're a little unique. But some of the, you know, the hardest statistics indicate that only 5% of pastors who start out in their 20s in some type of formal educational setting make it as a, to retirement as a pastor. 5%. Wow. Uh, focus on the family. And, and there's some who go a little bit higher. The highest I've seen is 10%. Yeah, so. 90% of, of, of the children of pastors battle some form of depression or anxiety and seek help for it. So, so self-care that, for So pastors. self-care is yeah. critical. Now, back to, to the, the depression. depression. The depression I, I, thing, yeah. yeah. I want this untangled. Yeah. I want the mystery solved here. Well, you know, any time we have a loss, whether it's real or perceived, I, I may think I lost something I didn't. Right. But in that moment, it's real to me. And what you're going to see is you're going to see a sense of loss, and that's going to produce a downward, you know, attitude. And this uh, isn't just loss of life. This is loss of anything. This could be anything. This could be these your are job. triggers for depression. Yeah. Well, well, you know, it's it, today. Those people. There's more research being done in the realm of counseling in terms of the physiological components, and even the early proponents of biblical counseling who were well known would tell you if somebody comes to you and presents as is just chronically sad, they just don't have yeah. good days and all this. One of the first things you tell them to do is go get a checkup. You know, you could have something wrong with you physically. And those researchers out there today, who are, they're indicating that up to 50% of depression, up to 50% of depression may be generated by physiological concerns. Really? Yeah. So it's not even mental issues. It's, I mean, they're just people that, and, and then you add to it the contextual things that you're talking about, yeah. like the loss, whatever the loss Uh then you add that to it. And, and, and the way a biblical counselor would approach that is, is that let's suppose somebody has a lot of depression in their family line, just as an example. All right, so somebody has a propensity 
toward, you know, toward, uh, say, depression. This is assuming that it exists, because there's people yeah. who de- to deny that it's a real medical condition, right? Well, Within the biblical counseling world? Well, well actually, it would depend. Some people think that, that you know, depression, uh, the answer to depression is in the hope of Jesus Christ. But all of us have, you know, weaknesses in our life. I have a really good friend, and he and I have had some great discussions about alcohol. Yeah. And, you know, can is it okay for a Christian to have a, you know, drunkenness, the Bible's pretty clear about. Right. Some people really get into that discussion. And can you occasionally, like at family gatherings at Christmas, you know, have something? He says he won't do it because he fears that he might be the person that when he takes that drink, that he all of a sudden he, yeah. he wants more and he's trapped. He's in an addictive cycle. Uh, well, so for I'm, him, it would be a violation of conscience, which was ever of faith as of sin. So for him, it should it should be you shouldn't do it a- anyway, right? Yeah, and it's like for for me, uh, I you, as you know, being my friend, I have yeah. a blood sugar issue. Yeah, and so as a result of that, there are certain things I can't partake of. I have to, I, yeah. you know, I don't like doing that, and uh, and so I have to be very wise about it. So if I don't take care of my body, that I know that eating that is going to harm me. It's going to trigger more of my diabetic condition. So what I have to do is, you can eat it; it's fine. Yeah. But I can't because I'm not taking care of my body. So, so physical it, issues are really physical, what's driving fifty percent of depression. That's what the researchers indicate. Wow. So, and you can do that, and then add. Now there are antidepressants that people can utilize in some situations, but I want to be very, very discerning. And I know some of the people when I said that, the red flags went up, and I'm yeah. glad they did. And uh, you always want to listen carefully, process it out, and, and, and I, I don't expect anyone to take me at, you know, carte blanche today. Right. They, they need to listen and then think it through and reason it through and, you know, battle through in prayer and discernment. I don't take any of that but away. But you're, you're not one of those people that says this is a myth. That you're oh, no. not really suffering. No, I mean, I, I look at I look at personalities. Yeah. You and I inter- will interact with a large group of people later tonight. Yeah. And in the course of that, you and I are going to meet introverts and we're going to meet extroverts. We're going to meet people that are going to say to us, I've been hurt in my church. Is there anything you can do to me? We're going to have other guys who are going to be in a euphoric moment, and they're going to want us to rejoice with them. And it may be somebody 10 seconds from the last guy we talked to. Right. And so oh, it happens every year. Every year. And well, so for those all, watching, it's Trinity graduation <laughs> week, and we have a big banquet and the ceremony tomorrow. So, yeah. yeah. So, but the thing is, everybody, as one of my buddies puts it, he says, we're all wired uniquely from the factory. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and we are. And then you add to it our context, you know, from our childhood to all of these kinds of things can really exacerbate these things. And, 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 and even if a person has, let's suppose they do have a, a, a huge physiological tendency toward depression, that does not have to be deterministic. There are ways right. that you can work with that and you go, you know what, I need to regulate things. If somebody's battling anxiety, you know, whereas I might be able to, or you might be able to process several things in a moment. Sometimes I go through seasons in my life that there's so many, you know, so many things going on. I have to be very wise. My values have to rise to the top and I have to go, I can't do that. I can do that, but I can't do that because I know I can't process that. And my warning flag for me, I know when I'm out of line, whether I'm a little saddened or a little bit anxious, I know that that for me is the case when cynicism comes in. If I start seeing a person or people as an interruption, you know, rather than an opportunity, I go, "Mm, I'm overdrained. I need to back it off and recharge a little bit. And one of the things that does that for me is Christian music. Everybody can find their own way. I have friends who do all kinds of things. They hike. But just something to reward yourself. Well, you lead a biker gang, from what I understand. Well, I did uh, (laughs) until uh, uh, the students who've had me in classes know that I I was a Harley guy for a lot, a lot of years. No tattoos, by the way. But I I rode and and had a lot of fun with it. But uh, a little under a year ago, I sold the Harley. Oh, man. So I've been going through myself. Depression. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) The loss of attachment. (laughs) The loss of attachment. I even had a name for it. I'm going to spare the listeners. See, I know you had a collection of motorcycle Uh, books. Are they still there? I still have the books. You walk by it. It's a uh, shrine now. uh, (laughs) (laughs) I still have the gear. I have the helmet, the boots, Uh, everything. The only thing I don't have is the bike. Oh, man. But uh, the thing is, is that... Yes, there are people that give in to a victim mindset and they take on a depression that's not legitimate. 
And when you start going out and manufacturing losses and, oh, woe is me, you know those people that no matter what happens in your life, they always one-up you on theirs is worse in some way. Yes, I know. And so a lot of of biblical counselors react to that, you know, by saying that's not real depression, and they're right. What that person is doing is acting like a victim and doing those sorts of things. So there are those people who they just feel like the way I'm going to attach with you is I'm just going to be sad. I'm going to be down and woe is me. And, you know, every pastor listening to this recognizes probably several people (laughs) in the congregation. It's a way to get attention. And then when we do not allow the hope of the Lord to grip our lives and guide us beyond the sense of loss, that if... If God allows something to be taken from my life, however, whatever the cause behind that, I have to ultimately trust his character, which is he's always loving and he's always all-powerful. And there's, those never, never, never contradict. Yeah, and what, but when I think of it, your classes that you teach here, yeah. okay? Uh, well, you teach the problem of suffering, which, yeah. which we've been talking about. You teach depression and anxiety. I do. You, bereavement counseling. Yeah. All of these orbit the same very downer. Yeah, they issues. do. You do. Yeah. You know, if somebody tells me, you know, my, my child died today and I'm just fine with it, you know. Well, that's th- weird. <laughs> that is, that, that's also, uh, you, if somebody told me that, my best guess would be, and again, we're not allowed to diagnose people from a distance, but, yeah. you know, just kind of off the cuff here, Sociopath. the shock has hit them so bad, or you just hit one too. Yeah. Uh, some, someone who obviously can't con- connect in any way with people in reality. And there are some people like that, by the way. Sure. Uh, the, the, the brain but waves. But the, they're so deep in shock, it's like, well, I'm going to be okay with this because yeah. they're not feeling it yet, but not they might yet. feel it later. But they may. And those people are at greatest risk because if you go through a, a, a sense of loss, the best thing to do is own it. Yeah. Figure out the best you can that what's triggering this. And, and I want to respond just a second tell you, there's a part of suffering that is probably the most challenging for those of us who try to provide counseling to people. And I'll mention that one in just a second. But what has to happen there is if they do not process it early, it's not a question of if you're going to process it or not. That's not the question. The question is when. And the sooner you do it, then you can understand what's causing your anger, what's causing the bargaining, what's causing you know the detachment, what's causing whatever. And see, people... Another thing that people do in the grief cycle is they follow the Kubler-Ross model and they think what's going to happen there is everybody's going to go through it in the same way, and people don't. People, no, no, pl- ex- people get onto us for saying big things without explaining. Explain that briefly. Kubler-Ross was a psychiatrist, uh, and she did research with people who uh, 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 were, battling, were faced with a terminal illness. Okay. And so she worked with people that were middle-aged and they had, you know, received a diagnosis of, of a terminal illness. And what did they do is they worked toward their death. And what people do, they don't understand. Her research was not focused toward the people who are left behind. It was focused toward the people who were struggling with their mortality. Okay. And so... But you, people take her model and, and apply it to Yeah, they'll say things like, all right, so Jonathan, when you left your dad, so, you know... Now, have you been angry? Okay, let me tell you. The next thing is you're going to go into some sort of negotiating, you know, bargaining. Right. And you may not. Because that's a, that applies to the one who's dying, not to the one who's survived. But not only that, even though her, her descriptive titles, even though her descriptive titles have merit, if I lose somebody and you lose someone, there'd be some similarities. Yeah. Shock, probably anger, probably bargaining, Probably some form of general acceptance, and then, and then going yeah. back. But you're going to, we're going to have some common, you know, themes in our life. But you're going to go through them different from me, and it depends again on who you're in, the person is in relationship to you, what the meaning of the loss has on your own life, and all those kinds of things. So we go through it differently. You cannot put, even though they're common themes, no. you cannot put a person inside of just one. St- and, they, and I see well-meaning people. They're trying to help someone. Well, you've had enough of this phase. It's time to move on. Now, there's a little bit of truth in that in the sense that if somebody's been angry now for over six or eight months and they still haven't moved on and they're still angry and lashing out, that's they're fixated and they need some help. Yeah. But, you know, you may be angry for two weeks. You might be angry for two months. I might be angry for a month and then come off of it, you know. It, it just varies. And so what you have to do, connecting so you can hear what they're really, what they're saying. And the other thing is what they're not saying, what they're not acknowledging. Right. You know, you're, you're listening you for You have to track both. that when you're helping somebody. And, and the other thing you want to do is you want to track that and you want to watch how they're processing 
like if somebody's talking to you, and I'm still going to get back to that thing about the yeah. most difficult one to deal with, but if, if somebody's like really fidgety, like their hands are going, they have a lot of mannerisms, most likely they're threatened and they're processing physically. If they're just kind of sitting there and they're looking off into the darkness and, you know, they're probably a little more cognitive. They're trying to find truth in there and connect with it. Right. And, and, and you know, they, if they're curled up in a ball on the floor in the fetal position and just screaming out loud, that's pretty obvious. Yeah. That's an emotional processing. So where the, that's where you're going to connect with them. You're going to start dealing with them in one of those, in one of those realms. Now, they're going to do all three of them, but they're going to have a predominant time. one. Yeah. They're going to have a predominant one. Now, I think that probably for a lot of pastors and counselors, the hardest one to deal with, here's suffering. And sometimes you, it's a sin matter. It's a, it, sometimes it is a violation of, of, a, of a natural order. Like if you don't take care of your body, the consequences that can come to that. Uh, sometimes it can be persecution, you know, but you can go back and identify, why am I suffering here? Right. Whatever the suffering, whether it's physical, emotional, or whatever. But the one that gets you, and is when you don't know. It's a mystery. And the prime example of that is Job. He was a man who loved the Lord, yeah. and yet what was going on in heaven? There was conversations going on. Job didn't know that. Right. He wasn't privy to this. He, to the, and so here he is. Consider your servant Job. You, you just, he loves you and worships <laughs> you because you give him all this stuff. Yeah, you know? and then you got these well-meaning friends who come along yeah. and his wife, and, you know, you know, the worst people on the planet. Right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so and, and it's like there are times, this is tough, yeah. But you may not know. And you may never know. And you may not, you may never, or maybe when you go to glory, I don't know. But when you go to glory, it won't matter anyway. Right. But see, the th- that's the one. If you can somehow, even if it's, their, if it's sin in their lives, and they can say, well, the reason this is happening to me is because, even though they don't like it, they can go back and identify the trigger. It's the yeah. one, like the Job-like experience. The, you, where you have no idea what the... You what, don't know. Yeah. And and you may and you may not know the trigger, and, but in that situation, even though you don't know what stirs the the difficulty, what you can do is still the the person who brings healing and hope is still the same person, and the word that brings the hope is still you know uh, the word of God. Yeah. So those are in, in your, our big words immutable. Right. And uh, I think that one of the things when I see people going through loss, one of the things we have to do whatever our form of counseling, is that we want to be able to attach to them, learn as much as we can. You want the object, you know, what's called the objective data, like who is this, how old are they, where do they live, you know, these kinds of things, their spiritual condition. And then the so-called halo or subjective data, which is, you know, their rate of speech, their eye contact, uh, you know, their mannerisms, all those kinds of things, because they're, they're often more revealing than what they say. Well, one one last little bit before we wrap up here. Now, you said the toughest thing is not knowing the source. You can't, do, yeah, yeah. But I, I'm curious about with a lot of people in the church, and and if we're all honest with ourselves, we we have besetting sin, yeah. right? It sometimes we are the cause of our own evil and suffering Absolutely. because of our sin. Some people, for some people, the sin is the one thing that they try to justify the most so they don't have to let it go even if it's a thing. I heard that even is the thing that's causing their their grief. and stuff. How do you deal with that? Because that's the one that I seem to find in uh, people a lot is the sin that's causing them the suffering that they try to justify and don't want to let go of no matter how much everyone else can see it. Sometimes it's blatantly obvious like you're having sex outside of wedlock and shacking up with so-and-so and you're wondering why you're having all of these problems. And and maybe your spending more than you take in right, and yeah. all that stuff. All this yeah. stuff happens yeah. around orbiting this one thing that you can all point to and say that's it, you know. But it doesn't have to be involved. It's not all. It could be gambling. It could be whatever. Whatever. But there's somebody will always have some sort of idol. Yeah. And they'll justify the place of that idol. Yeah. So that to me seems like that would be if the mystery item is the the number the the toughest thing. Getting people to see the folly of their sin seems like that sometimes probably the most second most difficult. When you, when you... well, you know, I think what happens there with individuals is sometimes what people are doing often is they're self medicating. Yeah. So sin is self medication sometimes. It's sometimes it is, and the reason that they have sometimes have difficulty giving it up is because they fear giving up what they perceive to be their comfort. 
So their thought is, well, if I give up this relationship, who am I going to attach with? All this right. person understands me in a way that if my I give spouse up this doesn't. Bottle. Our, our bottle. And then the one they right. often come up with is, you know, God wants me to be happy, doesn't he? And so I'm happy in, you know, taking the church funds and running off with somebody else, you know. And, and yeah. people will say that. We've all heard it. And the reality is this, is that as a counselor, you want to try to help the person see what's really taking place. Try to get them to measure out the, the, the consequences they're suffering. And in doing that, you know, you're, you're trying to bring them to the point, guide them to say, you know what? If I don't trust God and His Word in this thing, I, it's a form of you know what you and I would call practical atheism. I, I don't right. believe God's adequate, and and so if they continue to do that, then as a counselor, you have to be very guarded about something. And what you have to be guarded about is you do not want that person to become dependent upon you. And all of a sudden, if you're not careful, you're actually you know reinforcing the negative conduct. Because if you sit there with them and and, and he keeps talking, or she keeps talking over and over about whatever their self-medication is, and you're listening, and, you know, and does that not really work? And all this, boy, they're getting some kind of feedback yeah. from talking about that over and over Almost and a over. validation from bingo. you. Bingo. Oh, that's, yeah, bingo. you can't be that. Yeah, bingo. And by the, and, and, and but you so, can't break the relationship either, though, by just rebuke, rebuke, rebuke either. No, you cannot. That, and, that, that, and this you, is like and, the trickiest thing in the and world. And so what you want to do is, is you want to say, okay, I under I think we understand what's going on here. And I've shown you what it says wherever your source, the Bible, this is what it says about whatever your self-medication is. If you continue this way, you you and I have identified the consequences, you know. Right. It's at this point, I'll support you if you want to continue to move in the right direction. You can touch base with me wherever, but let me tell you what we will not do anymore. We will not simply sit here and go through this story over and over because all of a sudden you're unwittingly validating. They're getting a charge out of it. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and, and sometimes the most loving thing we can do is say, this is what it says. And I mean, if you want the consummate example of that, the Lord says, you know, unless you turn to my son in faith, what happens to you eternally? Right. <laughs> you know, so there's a very clear, you know, uh, boundary there. And I would encourage uh, anybody who's considering counseling, you know, always make sure you're not doing this to glorify yourself. This isn't about your sense of self-fulfillment or meeting unmet needs in your own life. Your goal in the biblical counseling realm is to help somebody who's hurting and is in some form of darkness or bondage to find the answers, the solution, It's it to work toward the victory that God wants him to know. And even Amen. for the secularist, and, you know, again, the disclosure, I have secular credentials as well, that even there, our goal is not to keep people where they just depend on us for, you know, the next 30 years so you have a guaranteed income from your patient base or something like that. Your goal is to help them move beyond where they are into a productive, meaningful life. And everybody goes through ups and everybody goes through downs. Everybody goes through that. It, I mean, you look at Spurgeon who battled depression, and yet he's one of the most anointed, you right. know, uh, pulpiteers, celebrated, uh, preachers, of celebrated preachers of all time. And a lot of people don't know. There are a lot of people in leadership roles in Christendom today who struggle with, you know, particularly on Mondays when they've expended themselves so deeply and poured right. out so much of their energy. How many pastors want to resign on Monday morning? You know? <laughs> so, so Far yeah, many, but, but it's, but you know, there is a victory in the person of Jesus Christ and in the power of his spirit. And so I hope uh, that, that pastors will explore ways that they can build a solid counseling ministry within their local churches. If you have a really small church, maybe some guys could go together and work together yeah. to provide that, but ways that you can provide help because People are going to try to find an answer. You want to make sure you give them the right answer. And you've got to have something in place for them to turn to and a place where they can, you know, explore their issues and find the ultimate answers. Amen. You know now, one quick thing, there's okay. a lot of subjectivity in counseling. Yeah. So some guys will, you know, like you said, and see, this is one of the, th well, let's do it and I'll tell you about Jay Adams, you know, the founder. Right. Uh, uh, did he say there was no such thing as depression? What he actually said was, you can have sense of loss and sadness. If that's the case, go see your doctor. Make sure we don't have a physiological issue, okay? Once we eliminate that, because, I mean, it can be, you know. 
And blood work will show that and all of that, you know, chemical imbalances or whatever. But once you identify that, then what you want to do is even if you have a tendency toward it, there are biblical ways you can work on it and find, you know, the answers that you're supposed to know. Yeah, well, there you go. So I've... uh... What I know of Jay Adams is is not very flattering. I've never read Competent to Counsel, but I know that one of you the... You ought to get the book. It's worth about 120 bucks. <laughs> well, Braxton's got a copy, and when he quoted a copy where he, where Jay Adams... And I don't want to go down this rabbit trail, but all I know of Jay Adams' book is what Braxton quoted from it, where he said, never tell a counselee that Jesus died for them because you don't know if they're one of the elect. And that's a whole other... Can- yeah, oh, it's yeah. in page 92 of his copy, so... Uh, that's always a weird thing. I know that, that the Jay Adams and the whole biblical counseling model, it, it, primarily in the Reformed tradition, yeah. the integration is pri- everyone else kind of accepts it. So th- there's a lot of interesting debates there. We won't go yeah. into those here. Um, but thank you so much for being here. If you are interested, uh, pastors out there, this is your man. He teaches biblical counseling courses here at Trinity College of the Bible Theological Seminary. If you like what you heard, you can enroll. You can audit a course and learn something. I, I've, I've said this for years that I've known you that I'm eventually going to start auditing all of your courses because I know <laughs> nothing about this stuff. But I think it's especially good for our audience who is, thinks more in the philosophical, apologetic mm-hmm. problem of evil. But there's a whole other huge, not, not, not philosophical aspect, but a human yeah. A, te- a human dimension to suffering because suffering actually happens to real people and people that we all know and love and ourselves even. So Absolutely. it's been wonderful shedding some light that we could never shed with Braxton sitting here and talking. <laughs> so, so, so thank you so much. And um, also go to our website, www.trinitysim.edu if you would like to enroll in the courses or if you'd like to audit some of the courses. His courses are obviously probably better than mine because he's so much wiser. <laughs> Um, But we hope uh, you enjoyed this program, and we will see you soon. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me today. God bless. If you would like more content, click here. And keep watching Bible Studies, click up here. And finally, we want you to subscribe. We need more subscribers, so click here.